Hello and welcome to our June Publications Podcast. I'm Ed Vital from the University of Leeds, Chair of the Lupus Forum. And this month, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Professor Brad Robin from Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. Welcome, Brad. I'm very pleased to be here, Ed, and uh, this looks like it'll be a, a lot of fun to discuss these excellent papers. I think it will. And it's perfect timing for you to do our podcast this month because we're starting out with some lupus nephritis papers, your area of expertise. So should we start with the paper by Malvar et al? Yes, happy to do that. And just so everyone, um, for full transparency, uh, I'm also part of this paper, so <laughs> I know it fairly well. Yeah. Uh, so uh, just a little description of, of why we did this. Uh, our group has been looking at repeat biopsies and their utility in understanding uh, lupus, nephritis, and you know how to treat, when to treat, when to stop treatment, these sorts of things. And uh, Anna Malvar and I sort of thought nobody really knows what happens in a kidney of a patient who does really well. The assumption, of course, is that things get better and go back to a normal kidney histology. And uh, I think that what this paper shows is that that is true to a certain extent, but it takes a, a very, very long time uh, to do so. And uh, so what we did in this uh, particular study was look at a large cohort of patients who had a kidney biopsy diagnosis, a kidney biopsy after the usual induction or initial period of treatment with intense immunosuppression, and then a kidney biopsy uh, well into the maintenance immunosuppression. Uh, and these were patients who were then followed for many years uh, and by and large did very well attained remission, kept their kidney function, et cetera. And um, what we uh, did learn was that uh, the activity index, so the activity index is, is the NIH activity uh, score, and these are the inflammatory components of lupus nephritis. And you can see uh, in the graph on the right uh, that the activity index of both of these groups uh, drops very, very quickly. Uh, and then continues to decline over time, but it is much slower. So it's a biphasic uh, response. And, and when we went to the components of the activity index, the uh, initial components, what drops very quickly in the intense uh, period of immunosuppression are the most inflammatory lesions like crescents and necrosis and neutrophil infiltration. And then the other uh, activity indices drop much more slowly over time. And I think what we can take away from this is, is that it is a very excellent rationale for why we need to continue immunosuppression uh, in a maintenance phase for a relatively long time for patients with lupus nephritis, because if you've already shown, as has others, have other groups, if you don't get rid of activity in the kidney, then it increases your likelihood of having a uh, relapse. Uh, what's not shown on this slide is uh, an increase in the chronicity index early on. It also follows a biphasic uh, um, 
timeline uh, where it increases uh, sort of rapidly during the intense phase of immunosuppression and then plateaus, uh, which also uh, suggests that even with our best immunosuppression in patients who are doing really, really well, as well as can be expected, um, we accumulate damage with every uh, lupus nephritis uh, active period. And that's why most likely, or one of the reasons why if people have a lot of flares, they tend to have sufficient renal damage to progress to chronic kidney disease or beyond end-stage kidney disease. Yeah, I thought that was a really nice study because there were so many repeat biopsies done in all sorts of different clinical scenarios. So really valuable data set. And I, I, also, I found it quite striking because I, I noticed like in that nine month, sort of approximately nine month first follow-up biopsy, most people still had activity. And in fact, even the ones who were histologically were remission still had active immuno, um, immunofluorescence. Right. Yeah. So, and I, 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 one thing I was thinking when I thought saw that is I kind of think, well, by that time point, like if you followed, say, the voclosporin steroid protocol, you'd be almost off prednisolone at that time point so it really feels like you're taking your foot off the gas at that time doesn't it and saying everything's okay now just need to maintain this but that's not really quite true they're still actually still improving so that's a really interesting question and it it, it, it raises a lot of questions one of the things we've often been asked in our work is well, we talk about sort of an initial period that's X number of months long and then this really long maintenance period. What happens if somebody really goes to, into remission very quickly clinically? Uh, do you think we could shorten the time span of immunosuppression, which would be ideal? It turns out that that may not be a very good idea because it looks like uh, in many of those patients, there is ongoing and significant mm -hmm. histologic activity. Your other question is really interesting. I, I want people to be aware that these patients were not treated with any of the new immunosuppressive agents yeah. that have been approved. Uh, and, and one of the things we'd love to do is to repeat a study like this using the new drugs to see if the activity is actually resolved in a much quicker fashion than with our classic immunosuppressives mycophenolate and cyclophosphamide. That would be fascinating if that could be shown to be the case. Yeah, but I suppose it makes an argument for more. There's more. We often have this discussion about should we just use mycophenolate and maybe add in other therapies if if things aren't going so well, or should it be the opposite and put in everything at the start and only reduce them when things improve, which is more my view. Well, yeah, that's also an interesting discussion. So I think as we get gain more experience with the new drugs, and uh, hopefully we'll be doing some of these, uh, we don't want to repeat biopsies in everyone forever yeah. with some fine biomarkers, but this is necessary at this time to understand how the disease course goes. Um, then we'll be able to answer those questions. And of course, this is a very good cohort. We're yeah. also now looking at the patients who didn't do well Yeah, we, to see what was left and are there specific lesions that we could target target that some drugs might be uh, more effective at. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a great, that was a great study, that one. And then we've got another nephritis study, haven't we, which is a trial of a new therapy. Yeah. 
So this one uh, is, is very interesting. For a long time, there's been a lot of uh, interest in the CD4, uh, CD40, CD40 ligand um, uh, co-stimulatory uh, pathway and inhibiting that in lupus. And, and a long time ago, sometime when I was first getting into clinical trials with lupus nephritis, and we didn't participate in this, uh, the anti-CD40 uh, antibody or ligand antibody uh, was used and it, it actually caused uh, thrombosis. And uh, the, tr the study was tr uh, stopped by the DSMB because of adverse events. And this has then been modified uh, to exclude the FC portion, which was felt to uh, be involved in that thrombotic event, making it a, a very safe therapy. And, and that part is, is clear. So uh, a lot of folks are interested now in re-looking at this system, uh, co-stimulation, to see if that can be modified in lupus and lupus nephritis and see if that actually uh, provides benefit. And, and so this was a uh, phase two exploratory proof of concept study. Uh, and in this study, uh, as you can see on the left, the, the trial was set up uh, as dose ranging. So three different doses of the uh, anti-CD40 antibody and the patients had to have active lupus nephritis, and the biopsies were proximate to the uh, initiation into the trial. And, and so they all had active lupus nephritis, they all had activity scores and chronicity scores. And then uh, the endpoint, uh, the primary endpoint was a complete renal response uh, at uh, one year. Uh, and that was a rigorous complete renal response, proteinuria less than 500 milligrams a day and maintenance of, of kidney function. Uh, over time. And unfortunately, as you can see in the uh, graph on the uh, right, uh, a complete renal response at week uh, 52 uh, was no different uh, in the placebo group, uh, as, and this was a mycophenolate background in this particular study, uh, and the various doses of the um, anti-CD40 antibody. And, um, and so the, the primary endpoint of the study was not met. Um, there were some considerations. Uh, there was, um, again, this was a dose-ranging study. Interestingly, a third of the patients uh, actually in the lower dose of the antibody, anti-CD40 antibody uh, uh, dropped out or ended the study early. So that was a little bit of a problem. Uh, but one of the other things that's interesting is that the response rate in the placebo group was actually quite good uh, in this uh, particular trial. And um, it, it's very difficult to compare across trials, but if you look at the response rate in the placebo group of the uh, local sporin trial and the Blumamab trial recently published, it was much lower. And so this particular study was powered on a placebo response rate that was lower, um, uh, of course, and that was how they calculated sample size, et cetera. Um, nonetheless, uh, doesn't seem to be much of a signal here. 
interestingly, there were improvements in uh, the Salinas lead eye scores uh, in some of the patient uh, important outcomes to patients, the PROs. And so there is some suggestion that the drug might be useful in uh, extra renal lupus uh, for some of these uh, particular activities. Yeah, I, I noticed that. Yeah, so they spent quite a lot of time looking in the data in postdoc analyses and different endpoints and things because sometimes negative lupus trials aren't really all negative. Um, and some, but uh, to me, it didn't look that it, it didn't look that exciting. The the postdoc analyses and those other endpoints, you know, there there were some numerical trends there, but none of it had nominal significance. And so, I, I, I'm I'm not sure how much how excited I was by this efficacy but that doesn't necessarily mean that the whole CD40 CD40 ligand story isn't going to work out um, in some other shape or form or in some other trial so there's a trial in progress in non-renal lupus but another company another molecule but same pathway isn't there so, well maybe. yeah I, I think you know again a lot of um analyses were done on different um, serologies laboratory parameters etc and again, nothing pushed me in a direction of saying, wow, this is really uh, something. Um, and some certain caveats have to be taken. There were some manipulations looking at, at proteinuria, for example, where this was based on a 24-hour urine protein evaluation uh, for absolute proteinuria. And there was a question of whether or not patients were completing their collections uh, correctly, et cetera. I don't know why that wouldn't be have been distributed equally between all the groups, frankly. Um, but they did look at spot urine protein to creatinine ratio, which we and others have shown is is a random spot, is is, is somewhat inaccurate in, in looking at um, an endpoint. Uh, and I, I wish they would have provided data on the protein to creatinine ratio in the 24-hour collections if they were worried, if the investigators were worried about over or under collection, that would help mitigate that yeah. from a, from a yeah. time collection. There's just one other thing I noticed about this one that just might be kind of interesting to listeners from a trial methodology perspective that I've seen a few more times recently is that the primary endpoint was this used this method called MCP mod, um, which you start to see a bit more in these phase two studies, don't you? Which is basically, as I understand it, is what you do is rather than the normal way you do a phase three trial, where you look at the percentage of responders between two groups, like a pair wise comparison, you're actually just trying to find that curve, the, the, the dose response curve you'd expect to see going lowest on placebo and gradually working up through, and it's some sort of model to test whether that appropriate curve exists. And, and if it did, you would then analyze it to say, what would the optimal dose be to go forward? So theoretically, quite an efficient tool for these phase two trials. But uh, unfortunately, this one wasn't effective. No, that was actually, uh, Ed, that was the first time I'd seen that endpoint yeah. used as well. So I do find that interesting. Um, but I have to remember back to a lot of other lupus trials where I haven't seen dose responses very often, frankly. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, so uh, on to the next one. This is one I looked at. And again, this is what I, I slightly have something to do with this because this is the British Biologics Registry. So I'm one of the investigators contributing data to this, although I'm not actually really an author on the paper. But anyway, I, I know a little bit about it. So 
the idea this registry was set up when rituximab first came into use in the UK, obviously an unlicensed therapy, but one that was regarded as an important. And as people from other countries may know, in the UK, we tend to use a lot of rituximab. Um, more as you, as you can see from the numbers in this abstract, we historically we've used it more than dalimumab. So um, in much the same way as had been done when anti-TNF came along for rheumatoid, um, there was a registry set up for um, rituximab and belimumab and other biologics that may come on in future for lupus. And it's a similar design, which is, so these are all run by, run out of Manchester. So Ian Bruce is the, is the lead on this. So the, the idea is, is that they, as well as recruiting patients who are starting on the new biologics, they recruit a standard of care group as well. So that's people starting on something like mycophenolate or azathioprine. Now, obviously, there are some differences uh, between the people starting on the different therapies, um, but there, there's, there's, there's some attempt in the statistical modeling to adjust for that stuff. So basically, you when, when you start a patient, so strictly speaking, whenever we start a biologic, we're supposed to enroll them into this registry. I can't say that always happens, but we're meant to. So it should be quite comprehensive sample. So and when they start, they it's pretty broad age over five so basically anyone with lupus really they'd have to be able to consent and they can say no if they want to which quite a few do and they have to have sla they have to be either be starting a therapy like you can you can enroll them a bit after they start the therapy as long as you put in the baseline data or a new standard of care drug and it the database is being used to look at various things to look at efficacy of the therapies there are some samples we use for some biomarker work that was published recently and some genetics. And in this, and particularly the most important purpose, purpose of it was this, which is to look at safety. In other words, serious infection rate in the first 12 months after starting therapy. Some of the data is quite hard to collect, you know, to get people to do sleep and biolag scores accurately and all their drugs and things like that can be quite difficult to collect on a registry scale where it's all happening in routine clinics serious infections ought to be quite reliable because the serious infection means you're hospitalized which is usually quite easy to capture from our our health care records so um the main results are, are on on the on the table there so there were 183 patients in standard of care 746 on rituximab 119 on belimumab and the serious infection rates the kind of the middle row there is the one I kind of look at because this is number of serious affections per a thousand patient years. So 102.5 on standard of care, 129.2 on rituximab, and 69.6 on belimumab with quite wide confidence intervals. So you know these these are these are not significant differences between these therapies. So the main conclusion was that actually the infect the serious infection risks seem to be quite quite similar here and I think the other thing I thought reading it just to put it into context is like if I think of like say the rituximab rheumatoid arthritis trial the serious infection rate there was about five per 100 patient years so 50 per thousand patient years so this is about double RA um, in the lupus patients but the same on all the therapies but that's you know the serious infection rate coming up about twice in lupus than they are in in RA regardless of therapy um 
I also there was something else interesting actually within the paper itself, which um, which is that if you look at they also did an analysis where they which went across all the different treatment groups. Forget the what what drug they're receiving, but just look at the generalized predictors of serious infection, um, which was quite useful, I thought. And they did it by this multiple failure Cox regression, which I think what it does is it means that if somebody has a few serious infections, that counts more. So um, you know they they contribute more to the to the risk than somebody who just had one. I think is what that does. But so there were some things in that that were pretty predictable. So in their fully adjusted model, they had comorbidities at hazard ratio of one point four five each. So as you'd expect, more comorbidities, worse. Low IgG before starting therapy that was a, a hazard ratio of two point one six. Prednisolone of more than 10, hazard ratio of 2.38. So these were all things I guess we would have predicted. But the, the one that I was, thought was interesting is being on other immunosuppressants had a hazard ratio 0.6, so sort of protective. Um, and I, I, I thought that was an interesting point um, that, uh, as I'm often saying to people, um, we always say our patients when we start them on these drugs, this is an immunosuppressant, it might increase your infection risk. But often there isn't that much to back that up. So here, rituximab doesn't seem to be any higher, or belimumab don't seem to be any higher risk than standard of care. In the randomized trials, often rituximab and belimumab, actually the infection risks were a bit lower than the placebo arms, presumably because people get better and lower their steroids. And in the multivariable model here, steroids put your infection risk up, but other immunosuppressants didn't. So you know, I think it's, it's important to remember that, that these, these drugs are, that yes, they're immunosuppressants, but people with lupus don't have a normal immune system to start with. And they probably bring you closer to normal. I was very uh, sort of fascinated by the really low uh, rate of serious infections in the Volumumab group. Now, yeah. I'm wondering if we had more patients in the, I'm surprised uh, Volumumab doesn't have a bigger following uh, maybe in the UK. Yeah. We had 700 patients in the Blumamab group with that sort of difference. I suspect, I, I'm not going to say it's protective, but it would have looked mighty good, wouldn't it? I, I, yeah, I, that is right. Yeah, so the, the confidence intervals are really wide, which is why the conclusion is that it's similar. But when you look at the point estimate, it does look lower. Um, then maybe, I mean, there's a couple... So there's a couple of things. Firstly, so in the UK, the lack of use of belimumab is not a choice. It's that we have government restrictions on it that are stricter than rituximab. So it's, um, uh, oh, they're probably, I mean, I, I think we probably had a bit of a habit of using rituximab before belimumab was even licensed, to be fair. So there's a, maybe a couple of reasons. But the other thing that may impact on that there is that the, the, maybe the patients are a bit different, that so you probably you might have less of a tendency to use belimumab for like a, a for like a renal patient, for example. We didn't have the data back then when all this was collected. It was only for non-renal. So there may be more severe people on the Ritux side. So we don't know. But all the same, I think the conclusion that these drugs are pretty safe is good with me. I think also the point you made about the prednisone, anything above 10 
was a, a big risk factor for serious, serious infection. So I think as, as you're advocating and most of us are advocating, we need to get glucocorticoids to be as minimal as possible, if not something to replace them eventually. And, and if that means using immunosuppression, more, more of other immunosuppressants, that's perfectly fine. This yes. Was, Okay, and so then we do have a couple more uh, abstracts on bilimumab, um, actually, don't we? Yes. So the uh, next one, th these are both interesting. They're both coming uh, from uh, the same group uh, out of uh, Stockholm. And Ionos uh, Perotis has reanalyzed all of the non-renal uh, bliss trials and uh, belumumab trials. And he did this first one, uh, which I found uh, very interesting, it, looking at the incidence of new flares in patients from the extrarenal belumumab trials. And he took, these are, these are all probably familiar names to the community, the BLISS uh, 5276, SC and NEA. So there were about 3,000 patients. And then uh, he looked at the patients, and none of them had severe kidney disease uh, with their lupus. That was one of the exclusion factors. And he uh, looked at the use of volumumab at different doses in terms of renal flare uh, with and without antimalarials. And I think this is a really an important analysis, uh, maybe more so for the nephrology community, my, my colleagues in nephrology, because there is a question of whether or not we should use antimalarials, although all the major guidelines now do recommend them. But I, I found this very supportive uh, of the data, uh, uh, very supportive of maintaining antimalarial use as you're treating patients with, with lupus nephritis. But the uh, primary endpoint uh, of this analysis, and of course, this is a post hoc analysis, was developing the first renal flare uh, throughout um, the follow-up. And what they showed, in, in it's here in the, in the table on the right, if you uh, look at antimalarial use with the different uh, doses of uh, belumumab, uh, you can see that the rate of renal flare in almost all of the uh, settings was much lower. And this was especially true, interestingly enough, for the non-approved very low dose of, of belumumab, which was sort of exciting when you when you think about it. You can also see that the adjusted hazard ratio was lower in the anti-malarial positive group in the uh, 10 milligram per kilo uh, IV dose as well, which is the approved dose, um, at least for lupus nephritis now. Um, the other thing that's not shown in this, in this uh, particular uh, uh, data summary is that looking at the anti-malarials alone, uh, also convened a benefit for preventing renal flare uh, in and of itself. So I took two things away from this study, adding an anti-malarial to already an immunosuppressive agent was positive and helped prevent renal flare. And the other thing was that, that even in and of itself, that's 
an important uh, mitigator of renal flare. And so when you think about the total maintenance of the patient with lupus nephritis, not only do we want to control active disease, but as I showed you, from re relating this to the first paper, every time you have a flare, you accumulate damage. And so the mainstay of what we want to do with lupus nephritis is prevent end-stage kidney disease. We don't want patients to go on to dialysis and transplantation. And of course, if we can mitigate flares uh, with something that, yes, there are toxicities to anti-malarial drugs, but we can manage those toxicities and they're well known, um, uh, then that sort of makes a lot of sense as part of the total package of keeping the kidneys healthy in our patients with, with lupus. And um, so I thought this was, this adds to the whole set of literature showing a lot of the beneficial uh, properties of the antimalarial drugs. I sort of consider them as a, a baseline immunomodulator uh, for all of my patients uh, with lupus and lupus nephritis. Yeah, I agree. Actually, it's interesting. In my, I, in my center, when we sometimes when we have really sick patients and we're discussing them in our meetings, I'm always saying, oh, and add in hydroxychloroquine. And people are sort of laughing at me saying, this person's really sick. You can't use anti-malarials. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. You still need it. it whatever else you're using, you need the anti-malarial too. Um, so it does remind Reminds of that. The other, another thing I noticed looking at this one was that they also analyzed um, patients. So these are non-renal patients when they go into this, aren't they? You're trying to make right, sure they right. don't have flare. But there was a group of patients who were bilag E for their kidneys. In other words, they don't have it now and they've never had it. Right. And in that group of patients, the out of 402 of those patients, they only saw two flares. So basically, if you've never had nephritis, you're going to be. If it prevents it, that's even better. Yeah. So, so in people, yeah. So that I th I thought that was quite because there were some case reports um, a while back of like newer cases of nephritis in in bilimumab treated patients, but that's not seen here here at all. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing I thought, you know, it just in thinking about this, is this is about belimumab for people who weren't nephritis to start with. But of course, we now have data on belimumab for people with nephritis. Um, and the particular benefit there does seem to be preventing flares, as, again, doesn't it? In, as well as in improving the initial remission, it's maintaining it, isn't it? So how, how long do you think we should continue it for? I know it's a really difficult question, but... So uh, everyone asked me, so I'm going to ask you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I, I, I actually, for anti-malarials, I keep patients. Yeah, forever. Yeah. For, for, yeah, basically forever, for really long time. Uh, again, I, you know, I, I look at the short term and the long term maintenance of the kidney. And what I'm taking away from the Belumimab experience is that this might be a really good maintenance therapy for a prolonged period of time. How long that is, I really don't know. Uh, but I certainly can relate this at least to my experience with B-cell drugs in maintenance for encovasculitis, right? Mm. Where you use the B-cell drugs for a couple times a year. Now this would be different, but um, uh, sort of 
maintain the, the patients in remission. If we could keep uh, um, belumumab on board and, and if we actually make it even safer potentially by using a very low dose as suggested by this paper, uh, this would be almost ideal. And one might yeah. consider if we wanna really prevent uh, renal flares, is this forever? I hate to say forever with immunosuppression, but we certainly say that with our transplant patients, don't we? Yeah. Maybe this is an approaching a forever sort of treatment, and if that is something yeah. worth studying. Yeah, I mean, again, if you you know, we, we know, I think we know that if you stop therapy, it, the question is going to get more and more of an issue, isn't it? Because as we get more therapies and you're starting people on combinations of multiple drugs, people really want to start knowing how long do I need. Especially the ones that are the high cost ones, um, but from the, the and we know that if you can't if you stop mycophenolate at three years, people start flaring. So that's a bit too short. Um, but we all from the study we looked at the very first one from today, you could see that people who were in histological remission, some of them still flared. Didn't they? Right. So right. It, it, yeah. So it's, it's all that adding up to some things need to be continued long term. So I think you know. I I see the field going. We maybe are using a lot of things at once, get the disease under rapid control, preserve the podocyte, preserve um, you, you know kidney function, and then maybe we're starting to peel off immunosuppressives and something that keeps the patient in remission without flare would be a, a longer term, especially yeah. something with very low toxicity, which is... Yeah sort of the suggestion of the paper uh, you reviewed. And then the next one here is another one. So as you say, this is the same group, look, again, looking at a similar data set, aren't they? Yeah, so this one uh, was interesting. I, I, I must say that neuropsychiatric lupus scares me, and I'm glad that I'm in clinic with my <laughs> rheumatology yeah. colleagues. Um, but what they did was essentially a very similar uh, study design. And they looked at this time five uh, phase three trials of lalumumab, and um, again these were these were not the re this was not the renal trial, uh, the Bliss LN, uh, and they were looking for determinants of neuropsychiatric flares in patients with lupus, and whether or not uh, having lalumumab on board uh, mitigated that, and. Um, they they looked particularly as at neuropsychiatric bilag A or B. Um, the, the primary result, I think, was that there was no association uh, of mitigating flares of neuropsychiatric lupus from belumumab at any of the dose or administration form. Okay, so that that was unfortunate, mm -hmm. but I think we all have to remember diagnosing neuropsychiatric lupus, I think is really hard. And, and um, they even looked at the sensitivity. They put patients without headaches in because is a lupus headache, neuropsychiatric lupus, or is it something mm. else? I think, you know, this is very difficult. It's for me, it's not quite as objective as looking at creatinine and proteinuria. So yeah. I feel sometimes I have it easy, but if you look at the box on the right, I think there was some fascinating uh, information 
from that uh, uh, box, uh, fr from this trial. And that is men with lupus, uh, it, that's a risk factor for developing uh, neuropsychiatric lupus. And you can see what the hazard ratio is. If you had neuropsychiatric lupus in the past or some form of it that's low level, that is also a risk factor. And maybe that makes sense a little bit. But what I thought was, was um, actually very interesting, if you looked at the uh, uh, lupus damage index, that was also a risk factor. And even though the strongest risk factor within the damage index domain was neuropsychiatric damage, stroke, seizure, that sort of thing, um, also, it was a positive association with other indicators of damage, including kidney damage, uh, which surprised me. Uh, and I, I, I'm not sure I understand why that is, um, but my suspicion is that a lot of patients may have neuropsychiatric involvement and we're not necessarily picking it up because we don't have good objective tests for it, unless it gets really bad. And yeah. I don't you must see this much more than me. Yeah, and it's you're you're right. It's really really difficult to diagnose um, because you can have some people who seem to have quite clear presentations with things like seizures or psychosis, um, but some of those have normal MRI, and that doesn't mean it's not necessarily lupus. Um, so it 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 makes it extreme, and then you use all this circumstantial evidence to try and decide whether you think it's lupus. You should try and treat it, or not. that's that's that, and that that is impossible. And so that's why it's difficult to to get data data on these things, I guess. Um, and then you've got other, and it's also it's a very mixed bag of syndromes because yeah, those things I talked about, that's like cerebral disease. But you've also got under the headache of new neuropsychiatric, you've got like mononeuritis multiplex might be in there or something you know so there's you've got a mixture of transverse myelitis you've got a mixture of very very different pathologies all bunched together under one heading so hard i actually i also thought i thought the i when i thought about this study even though they didn't show a protective effect of belimumab i still thought it was quite a clever way to look at the question because the problem with these non we call it a non-renal lupus study but that doesn't actually include all the other organs affected by lupus. It's almost all entirely skin and joints. And so when you get onto other, so neuropsychiatric is hard to put in trials, partly because what we just said, it's hard to assess, but also it's hard for them to consent. And the standard of care is a bit unclear what it should say. That, that's difficult. And when you think of other severe manifestations of lupus, like say gastrointestinal involvement, pancreatitis, hepatitis, like these are difficult clinical things to manage and they're not that common. So actually, when these drugs are licensed for non-renal lupus, we don't always have all that much evidence for what they do to other organs apart from the skin and the joints. Um, and it's hard. You'd I think we need to work out how to do trials on those more severe but non-renal manifestations. We have to work out how to do that. But in, until we can have done that, one thing we can do is do this, which is look for new flares instead of improvements. Which I, so I thought it was quite clever in that way that you get data on an organ manifestation that wasn't actually particularly studied in the inclusion criteria. Absolutely agree. I, I think that not only do we not uh, look at these, we actively exclude patients from almost all trials with lupus 
that have active neuropsychiatric lupus, right? Yeah. And that's yeah. often an exclusion criteria. So I think this group has really uh, done a service for us by starting to, uh, and I think one of the reasons they were able to do this is there were so many studies of balloon. Yeah. Because right. actually, that's the limitation they've got is the number of neuropsychiatric flares was quite low, which makes yeah. it a little bit hard to say that there wasn't really, you know, like that they didn't have much to work on. Exactly. Uh, you know, even with these thousands and thousands of patients, they still only got quite small numbers of, of flares to even analyze. But, but this was a perfect setting uh, for for Ionis's group to do this and and really give us some important information. And I think. I, I'm not sure how, uh, I, I think people might have looked at male sex before and this type of thing, yeah. but uh, certainly the SDI scores was a surprise to me. Yeah. Uh, I read this. So this was, I, I learned a lot from this actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so uh, I think it's just, just always a, another thing I'm quite often saying is, is this, this just shows why we don't just need the randomized trials to tell us how to use these drugs. The, 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 the clinical experience and the case series and, and case studies is all really important as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, that's our last paper for today. So thank you for joining me, Brad. It's been great to have your insight and obviously your expertise on nephritis. Very interesting discussion. I've really enjoyed this and I, I hope our, our viewers get something out of this and Go back and read these papers. I think uh, you'll you'll enjoy them quite a bit. Yeah, and you can get if you want to look at them. You can get the you can get full slide decks on the Malvar, Jane, Rogovich, and Gomez papers at lupus-forum.com. So you can just download the powerpoints and use them yourself. It's free to access. Um, and don't forget to register for updates on the Lupus Forum too. You'll get email updates whenever new content comes out um, and you can also look on lupus forum or one word on twitter and linkedin so thanks again and see you next time bye bye